Hi there, debated listeners, it's Will here. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about a podcast I'm really enjoying at the moment. We're currently facing one of the most challenging moments in human history. Our governments are under increasing pressure to bring about the results people expect, while remaining trusted and relevant. And yet, the systems, structures and processes of government today are often not set up to respond to the complex challenges we face as a society. Reimagining Government is a new podcast from the Centre for Public Impact and Apolitical that explores radical new approaches to addressing the most pressing issues of our time. By speaking with public servants and politicians at the heart of government worldwide, it shines a light on how to reimagine government so that it works for everyone. From the climate crisis to equitable healthcare provision and how to rebuild trust with marginalised communities, listen to the Reimagining Government podcast to explore today's most urgent global issues. Don't miss out. Find and follow Reimagining Government on your favourite podcast streaming platforms. I will work day in and day out. Wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Hugh Goldborn to discuss the new partnership, uh, the new project between Progressive Britain, Labour Renaissance and Hugh, Fair Competition for Fair Growth. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Good morning, Will. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, could you explain to the listeners who who haven't seen it, haven't um, been engaging with it, what Fair Competition for Fair Growth is and, and how it started? Yeah, that's a great question to start with, isn't it, Will? Um, so I suppose to take those questions in in reverse order how did it start well i'm a um a commercial solicitor based in the north of england in huddersfield in west yorkshire and most of my clients are um a small and medium-sized enterprises um i also in my spare time uh, which i don't have that much because I've, <laughs> I've also got a family two young daughters um I'm also involved in the Labour Party and uh, campaign as we are at the moment for the local elections, etc. Um, and I've done a lot of work in the past on policy, particularly around energy and and, and climate change and those sorts of things. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm also a member of our local chamber of commerce, so I work a lot with small and medium-sized enterprises. And my local area is really an economy in West Yorkshire of small and medium-sized enterprises, you know, businesses that employ anywhere between one and two hundred and fifty employees and so you know i i guess one of the first frustrations i have will is that often discourse about the economy revolves around big large corporates doesn't it you know the big names that we know the big supermarkets the big tech giants like microsoft have been in the news today and others and we don't often hear about the smaller organizations but they're the ones that are intrinsic to our economy right they employ more than 60 percent of people and in an economy like mine here it'd be much higher uh, and they also put a lot of good stuff into our local community. If we think about the people who are rescuing our local football clubs, our local choirs, our local community groups, it's small businesses, right, who invest in those, give money. Uh, and they're employing local people. They can't just suddenly offshore and go somewhere else, right? If you're a business yeah. that's located in a local area, supplying a local area, that's not of interest to you. So they're intrinsic to our local community, communities, societally and, and environmentally as well in terms of what they do. 
And yet we don't talk about them very much. Um, and they don't really have a voice. There's a reason why they don't have a voice. They don't have, you know, they can't afford to pay lobbyists to sort of sit in Westminster and talk to government ministers or or go out on, in the press and that kind of stuff. So this comes from that sort of frustration. I, I, I work with them. I see the fantastic work they do, both in terms of employing people and the contribution they make to our economy, but also to our local communities and to society. And so uh, when I started talking to Progressive Britain, um, and Labour Renaissance, and I'm, I am on the steering group of Labour Renaissance. We were quite excited about the chance, I guess, to raise awareness of this um, nationally, and particularly within the Labour Party. You know, the Labour Party um, is doing quite well for the moment. I don't think it's any secret to say that they might form the next government. And we want them, if they're forming the next government, to um, put SMEs front and centre of their economic um, policies. And we, can, but we can see some tensions in that, right? And one, as I said, um, large organisations can lobby much more effectively. They have the resource and the opportunity to do that. So we need to do that on behalf of SMEs. Um, and to you know, the history. I'm a trade unionist. I'm a member of two trade unions. The history of the Labour Party is founded in trade unions, and for good reason. We continue to um, be highly represented by them. But again, you know, the trade union movement is more public sector now than private sector, if we're honest. And even in the private sector, um, you know, SMEs generally are not, are not don't have trade union organisers within them. Um, and so, there isn't that natural lobby in the Labour Party. Mm. If that makes sense. And so, again, we just want to form that lobby. We want to make sure there's a strong voice for SMEs, and we want to do that for all the reasons that I started. It's a values-based judgment, right? They SMEs generally. If we all think of the community, I don't know where you live, Will, but if you think of the community that you live in, um, it's often the local business owner, isn't it, who is known as by his employees or his or her employees as um, as being a leader in the community. But often that's the person you turn to, isn't it, to um, if your community centre is closing or needs some investment, who can sponsor it? Who can sponsor our local youth football team? Who's going to help the choir out? Who's going to? fund the cleanup of the local park you know it's often that business leader isn't it and so we need them we need them not just for economic growth reasons but also for our communities and so that's why we think it's really important for the labor party to put them front and center of of, of any policy going forward mm -hmm, absolutely and and one of the things that um, really comes uh, across as well is not just that obviously uh smes don't have the same kind of um uh, lobbying power that uh, larger multinational uh, companies have, but also that they have been um, perhaps much more impacted by um, COVID and, and the COVID pandemic than those um, kind of organisations. Do you think that it's particularly important, given the economic problems that we're seeing in Britain, um, both as a result of COVID and as a result of um, all sorts of other things, for the Labour Party to make sure that it supports um, small and medium uh, enterprises more now because of how integral they will be to any economic recovery under a potential future Labour government. The, the short answer is yes. Um, the, the there's a, there's 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 you're absolutely right. This is this is front and centre because we 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 can't have this debate in isolation from um, the economic context that we find ourselves in. You know we are. I probably don't need to um, <laughs> recite some of the, um, the the macro statistics around this, but we're pretty much at the bottom of you know the global giants in terms of economic nations, um, in terms of things like productivity. Uh, wages are still lagging behind inflation. Um, 
underinvestment in in R and D and other and other things like that. And so, really, yes, I mean, we need um, to catch up quickly with with other nations. And economic growth is probably the only way out of our current you know cycle. I mean, I think what it was only this week, wasn't it, that the chief economist at the Bank of England said we're all getting poorer and we have to mm. accept it. Well, um, <laughs> I'm not sure most people are going to accept that. Uh, so. Um, so growth is, is well, I certainly wouldn't want to be a Keir Starmer yeah. saying that at the next general election. So, and I don't suppose Rishi Shunak will be either. So, um, so growth, yeah, is going to be front and centre of this next general election, isn't it? And to get to growth, and, you know, it's important that we've called this fair, um, fair competition for fair growth. I think fair growth is front and centre of um, the Labour Party's manifesto. And... So fair competition, I think, is 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 right, and I think um, when we look at SMEs, both historically and during this period, um, first of austerity and then and then going into COVID, they've tended to be, um, yeah, we've we've tended to put less emphasis on helping um, those organisations to to recover. Um, you know, if we think of think back to what 2008 9 there was a huge bailout package that we're still all paying for by mm. the way i don't think we talk about that enough, um for um all of the major banks uh, and financial institutions there was no such bailout for smaller organizations you know organizations employing say 100 people in huddersfield um who also suffered because of the lack of liquidity in the market some of them went of course went under um there was no such support there was no bailout so you know there, there's that um there's that kind of historic uh, issue around needing to put more investment into into local businesses. And you're absolutely right to talk about COVID. I mean, though it's starting to feel quite a long time ago, wasn't it? It's 2020 mm. and we're in 2023. But businesses coming out of that had, you know, they had quite a lot of support. And I think it's fair to, you know, I think we should give credit where credit's due to the Conservative government and the Chancellor at the time, who's now our, our Prime Minister, that there was support. There were grants and other support mechanisms that were put into to help organizations of all scales through that period um but that has largely dried up now um and so the context that we're going into over the next 12 to 18 months is a world where there aren't those support mechanisms for smes and local businesses and i think the question is how do you take organizations that have now gone through what a cycle of um you know, and it is important to look at this. If you've survived for the last 12 years, you've gone through a liquidity crisis where you probably had to take on a lot more debt to get through that kind of um, financial crisis period. You've then started to try and, and do better. There was then the disruption around leaving the European Union and Brexit. Um, then you've just about recovered from that, you've gone into COVID. Um, even with the grants, most businesses, and, you know, let's. You know the, the trouble with SMEs is that they're as wide as they're they're they're, they're sort of tall, aren't they? So you've got mm. anything from a quick growth tech business. You know, I've got I've got contacts who run things in digital health that have gone from sort of ten employees to 150 in the last three or four years. Um, you've got that kind of business which actually is doing very well, and um, and we need to put a focus on helping them scale even more. But they're very different challenges to someone who say owns two pubs and mm. a, a coffee shop in the middle of Huddersfield, right? Um, and those organizations are really struggling because they've had to go through all of the, that period, including COVID, when they couldn't even open. Um, and then now with the decline of high streets, uh, business rates still being relatively high. I know there's been some um, 
some some work on that, but they're still relatively high. Rent's very high. Um, cost of energy skyrocketed, right? Um, cost of food, cost of everything's gone up. So they're, they're having to wear all those costs in a climate where actually most of us have less money, as the Bank of England have said this week, to spend. So, you know, that's a huge crisis for our high street in terms of retail, leisure, et cetera, et cetera. And so for those businesses, really, I think there's a critical question around what can we do quite quickly to help them, if in, in, in both now in terms of the government and, and what's Labour going to do to help them. And that's, you're right, that's absolutely front and centre, and that is around, yeah, coming out of COVID and what, what kind of support can be done. Now, I know the Labour Party has talked about um, potentially more work on rates relief. Um, it, I think there'll be much more work that's needed to be done, and that's what we've started to do for them. Um, one thing in particular, um, you know, we've one of the things we've done is we've started to launch a series of essays. That's the way we're, we're yeah. starting to do this. And we are working towards basically putting together a manifesto between Progressive Britain and Labour Renaissance um, of, you know, sort of top 10, 20 things that we believe a new Labour government could do in the first 100 days. And I think mm -hmm. that's the important thing to say. Quick interventions, not, not many of them requiring huge amounts of capital, because we we start from a place where we understand that um, you know that there might not be that much money in the treasury, um, and certainly if there, any money that there is is going to probably be <laughs> needed for public services and other mm -hmm. things. So we recognise those challenges. And so what we're trying to say is that there are other mechanisms by which um, a Labour government can quite quickly intervene and do some um, quite um, interesting things. Um, and if I were to give an example of that. We've, we've talked a lot about the productivity angles, right? Mm -hmm. Lack of productivity yeah. within British business as a whole. Actually, SMEs are even, even um, are struggling even more than large organizations. So organizations that employ, say, 250 to 999 people, 1,000 people, which are generally not SMEs, um, the larger corporates tend to be more productive, actually, um, than those that are SMEs are 250 less employees. In fact, those organizations tend to be 20% less productive um, than, than larger organizations. Productivity is normally driven by things around um, either lack of access to capital, so he's not able to um, do the sort of research investment in R&D that you might need, mm -hmm. yeah. or digital investment, right? Um, yeah. Or actually employees, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the challenges I hear all the time from businesses that I work with, advise or, or help support in other ways, is that they're currently on this treadmill of you've just about got the workforce you want, some of the leaves and you're back into and and that that's a good place actually. It, most are even in, in a worse place where they've just got at any one time five percent of their workforce needs to be filled, right? And so they spend so much time thinking about how do we get the people we need into our business. And, you know, that's just hampering productivity hugely. So there's a skills agenda, I think, here. Um and there's also a digital one, an investment in digital and just helping, um, and then also helping SMEs to have the access to finance that means that they can make those investments ahead of time, which is what large corporates are able to do because they do have much larger balance sheets and often have that um, profitability that enable them to do that. So that's one of the things that we're encouraging the Labour Party to look at and um, look at ways in which they can do that. There are also things in terms of um, 
particular regulatory interventions, right? And this is where you really get to the weeds a little bit, but it is important, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be quite important, I think, for um, whoever's the, you know, Rachel Reeve, Jonathan in, 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 in Bayes and others, um, whoever goes into those departments to really get into the detail on this, because if you look at, say, something like competition policy, mm -hmm. which is, you'll know has been in the news today because of the, um, the potential ac acquisition by Microsoft that's been blocked by the Competition yeah. Market Authority. Fantastic work, by the way, they've done on that. Um, but that's that's large organizations. There is no real focus within the Competition Marks Authority or within competition regulators generally in, in the UK on SMEs. And so one of the things that we're calling for a Labour government to do, and, and the Conservatives are welcome to do it in the next few months as well, is... Um, is look at that. So one of the first things they could do is every every couple of years they give a strategic steer to um, to the CMA, and one of the things they could put in their next strategic steer they didn't in 2019 when they last did this is to encourage um, the Competition Markets Authority to to have a focus on SMEs and actually to come up with a separate strategy for SMEs. So I think that would be one of the first things they could do, um, and and think about how they're going to strengthen SME voice. Now there is of course one organisation that particularly represents small and medium-sized organizations in the UK, and that's the Federation of Small Businesses. So they could potentially, they don't at the moment, they could potentially give the Federation of Small Businesses um, a, a strategic role, um, uh, which which other um, organizations have, and in particular a power to make super complaints about areas of competition policy that they think are not working. We think mm -hmm. that's something that they could do, that any government could do quite quickly and would really give give that strategic steer and mean that resources are being put into helping SMEs. Um, one of the other things that they could do um, in relation to that, and one of the things the CMA could do, is resell, retail price maintenance, which is viewed by within competition law. And I'm getting quite technical. <laughs> I used to be a competition lawyer at one stage. So yeah, yeah. Um, let me try and explain the best I can. So resale price maintenance is effectively where you fix the price of your your goods or your services, yeah. uh, and you might do it with I might do it with another business that's in my that's a competitor, right? Now that is generally seen as anti-competitive for good reason. You know, if Microsoft and uh, another provider of that scale were to get together and fix prices, that would be quite difficult. You know, Microsoft and Google all mm -hmm. sat in a room and decided how they were going to fix how they were going to price things. That would create an artificial pricing mechanism. That's not good for consumers and it's not good for economies. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, there's a lot of evidence that shows that where pub A and pub B or small manufacturer A and small manufacturer B do that, it can actually be quite a good thing because A, it's not big enough to really affect consumers. You know, if, if you don't like that pub, you can go to another one somewhere else or those two pubs. Yeah. If you don't want to buy off that medium-sized manufacturer beds, well, you, there's hundreds of others around the world, right, that you can or thousands of others. Um, but actually what it allows those businesses to do is to have some certainty about pricing such that they know um, they know how much profit they're going to have for a period of time. And that allows them then to build up the reserves that they need to invest in the things that we just talked about, make them more productive. So actually it can be pro-competitive because it enables those organizations to grow, to develop, to invest, and to give a better output. And of course, do all the things we talked about before in terms of investing in employees and other things. And there's, it's not just us saying this, there's a lot of academic work that's been done on that. And it's working in other jurisdictions. So the US, for example, um, their competition authorities have a regime that ensures that, um, that, they, that, that, that they, they have a distinction between um, larger organizations who 
who impose retail price maintenance, which is illegal, mm-hmm. and smaller organizations where they look at, is is that actually causing harm? So you know what I just said. So if there's no real harm to the local economy or to the wider economy, then it's fine. You should do it. It, it, it might actually be pro-competitive, actually. If there is harm caused, then yeah, it's illegal. And <laughs> But they look at, at it as a harms-based, whereas in the UK, we actually say any form of retail price maintenance is illegal and you'll be um, fined and, and severely reprimanded for it. Just one example. I know it's in the weeds a little bit, but it does show that you know there are things that you could do relatively quickly that would um, really unleash the, the, the benefits um, uh, and, and, and encourage growth and stimulate investment by, by those organizations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned um, the, the essays that have been released as part of the project. And um, one part of um, Syaf Miller's uh, essay particularly um, took my eye, in which he advocates for um, childcare to become um, tax-free. How much of an impact do you think that that would have on the economy? And what impact do you think it would have on parents who need help with childcare, need that support, and perhaps haven't been able to get it yes no you're right and that's um that's one of our really i guess most radical um papers um i've spent as it's cf miller and 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 i've worked quite a lot with the local um car dealership um and so coming out of that we've had many quite deep conversations actually about tact in particular interest and that that element of um policy mm-hmm. and it's quite interesting because um this paper i think is it's particularly radical actually and, and and challenges i think quite a lot of the orthodoxies around um tax policy uh, and, and some of the assumptions about you know the fault lines between say left and right labor mm-hmm. and conservatives in particular, I noticed that he quoted Adam Smith, um, who <laughs> generally would be quoted, would be <laughs> quoted more by uh, by conservative mm-hmm. commentators. But actually, he's quite right, and I don't know if you've read Adam Smith. Um, he's quite right to quote Adam Smith because actually, yeah. Adam Smith came from a, a quite progressive background, mm-hmm. and um, and and if you read the fullness of his works, actually, is. Um, it's fairly progressive, right? It's just that some yeah. elements of it have been, <laughs> have been accentuated, perhaps, mm. by um, by conservatives since the time of uh, Margaret Thatcher. Go. So, I, I think that's. I think what you said is is absolutely right in that um, childcare at the moment is prob is in that dis- debate we just had around productivity. Is is a is a very very material point, isn't it? In that, mm-hmm. as you try and get people back into work. Um, and I know I know this very well at the moment as a parent. Um, there comes a, there becomes an inevitable discussion in a family around um, what, depending on your income levels, where whether there's any real value going into back into work, right? And um, and actually, if we think about it from a business perspective, it, it's something that um, they want to support families to do, so they can get people back into the workplace, right, mm-hmm. and then help progress them. So. Absolutely, I think you know that we could we could really um, help more people back into work, help address the productivity challenge, ensure more equality and fairness in the workplace. You know, in terms of gender equality and other things, ensuring that people can get back into the workplace, particularly women. I think that's really really critical. The government, as we know, has said they're going to do something um, in I think it's eighteen months' time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Back end of twenty four. Um, I think as CF said in his paper. It's a shame that we have to wait that long. We can do something now. The um, the way it's currently administered, the sort of 
um, working families tax credits um, and universal credit is expensive, time consuming. Um, I think lots of audits are shown that it's riddled. There is some fraud and elements and other things. Um, and um, you know the amount. So the amount we spend, I think, each year is about twelve billion yeah. um, on child benefits. Um, a bit less, I think, about eight and a half billion on personal tax credits. Um, but we only spend five hundred million on tax-free childcare. Um, and so really, I think fundamental to his point, first thing is that a lot of our credits don't provide free childcare. Um, they penalize low income families who want to work, which is exactly where, you know, I think labor wants to be in terms of helping low income families into work. And they don't really reward working more. Um, they kind of might reward working less to some extent. And, you know, I think there's been lots of debates on that where families come for, I've listened to them on Radio 4 and others where families have said that they actually mm -hmm. want a, a, a system that actually gives them access to high quality affordable childcare um and enables them to go into the workplace if that makes sense um so i think cf's idea was um given that most parents want to work we could help them by giving them more choices um you know could we cover up to 48 hours per week free childcare um up to primary school age and his analysis is that um you know because because, because um you know, most people have, I think, full-time jobs of 30 hours per week, including, say, commuting. Um, and so, and, and then I guess there's also the wraparound support as well. Um, so his analysis is that you could fund um, this by reallocating some of the spending above, which is approximately, um, I think it's about 20, 21 billion per year um, for free childcare. Um, and so effectively, all he's talking about, and this has real resonance, I think, of some of the stuff that was done before the last Labour government came in into mm -hmm. the mid-1990s. This is a question of how you spend the existing money that's spent on the system um, in a much more efficient way. So you take exactly that 20, 21 billion that's already spent and allocate it in a far more um, efficient manner to effectively help those families that need it the most, um, rather than having a system which at the moment seems to defeat itself that makes mm -hmm. sense and so um and and and, and so and, and i think that's reflective of quite a lot of um the recommendations that he's made i mean i thought i, I you're right that childcare one was very interesting i thought the corporation tax mm -hmm. um yeah. recommendations were very interesting in that in effect there what he's saying is why not have a corporation tax system that's more reflective of the personal tax system you know we know in our income tax that the grades certain people um you know up up to a certain level now it, it's, it's gone up just a, above ten thousand a bit, bit more than ten thousand you know you, you it's, it's tax-free and then you go into brackets above that now you don't have that in the corporation tax system so you don't have smes exempted from a certain amount of corporation tax and they're all paying the same level we know it's now gone up as well um and this debate around corporation taxes is probably a bit too binary in that it could be that we're putting up corporation tax on the largest organizations to a much higher level, perhaps even reflective of personal tax levels for, for those highest earners. Mm -hmm. um, and those that have less turnover or smaller profits, which I think it should be profit-based, I guess, because that's your real income rather than your turnover, those would, be, um, those would uh, incur smaller rates of corporation tax. And his analysis, I thought, was really interesting because often the narrative about corporation tax is you reduce it and the economy grows. <laughs> and yeah. His analysis yeah, yeah. shows that actually 
um, where we've reduced it, the economy hasn't grown faster, and where we had sli- slightly higher, actually, I think it was around 30% corporation tax during the, ni- during the 2000s, um, we actually had a pretty steady rate um, of, um, of growth, which is around the, the growth that we want, which is about 2.6%. So um, it, it's, I think that was quite important, because I think it's important to, for any policy to be evidence-based, and, um, and some of this becomes a narrative rather than actually being based on truth, doesn't it? So, hmm. so I, I thought that's very interesting, and I think that those recommendations, um, the full suite of them, you're right, the childcare recommendations, the ones he's made on corporation tax, he's talked about some personal tax reforms as well that would obviously help uh, employees, um, all of which through the lens of, and also pensions, um, and he's also reinforced some of the stuff around windfall tax that, um, that the Labour Party, I think, have been talking about. Um, I think all of those things show that there's there's just a relative reorganisation, actually. It doesn't have to be a completely radical change. Mm-hmm. Um, would enable much greater fairness in the system, but all against the lens of actually that enables your economy to grow. It enables small and medium-sized enterprises to become more efficient, more productive, employ more people, put more money back into the economy. It can pretty much be tax new, uh, revenue neutral to the treasury. So we're not talking about this is a choice between growing business and economies and public services, which seems to be the debate that we always have. You can have both, but it, this is about radically changing the balance of of, um, of where you put your your investment in in in, in business mm-hmm. absolutely and I'd, I'd just like to turn to um andrew dyson's paper because one of the things that, that that stood out to me um in what he wrote was in relation to um the tie between encouraging new businesses and regional and local strategy so he suggests that you can um see certain clusters of particular types of specialized businesses in in in, in particular areas and that can of course have a um, great impact if you encourage them on local and regional economies. Do you think that this is something that could be um, effective both on a, on a regional scale and also on a, a national scale, as it were, in that you could identify areas where these businesses need a particular type of support, whether it just be um, plain capital or, or, or other types of support like improved infrastructure, that that kind of thing. And that could help not just level up particular areas, but also contribute to um, growing the economy of the country overall. Yes, good. Yeah, great, great question. I'm glad you've, you've um, highlighted that. And and I thought you were going to get through without saying the words "leveling it up," but you did say because yeah, I think front and center of that um, that proposal it ties into yeah regional strategies, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And then what has been termed leveling up. Um, um, you know, but um, but what I might just call, you know, make, making sure no communities left behind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I'd say, you know, if we, if 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 we're honest, we haven't yet seen the full flavour of this from the current Labour from bench. Um, I'm sure it'll come out nearer to the election, uh, and so this this ties into that, right? In that. Um, yeah, some of some of Andrew's paper is about fast growth startup businesses, and there is no doubt that they play that that sector or subsector is going to play a very important role in in, in growth in our economy. 
particularly because of where we are in the race to net zero and the kind of digital 2.0, even 3.0 now, I guess, with, um, with, you know, um, with AI and, and, and the new stuff that's coming through. Right. Um, mm. and we need to, at the moment, the UK, I, I don't think just Andrew, but others would, would have made this critique. It's, it's lagging behind, right? Because other nations have put, um, the US I think is the exemplar, but the European Union is doing it as well. China has done it for a long time and others are putting a real focus on competition. Um, uh, almost at the, uh, where we're, we're almost exiting the age of globalization, aren't we? And going back into kind of a competition between national economies and protectionism. Well, I don't want this to be a debate about that, but that's, mm-hmm. that's where we are. Right. And so mm-hmm. in the US, they are taking a regionalized strategy. They're saying in Pennsylvania, we're going to go from coal mining before and other industries that have been dying for years. And we're looking at, you know, how you make um, uh, processor chips or, uh, you know, is this going to be the generate, are we just going to generate loads of um, solar, solar energy here, you know, et cetera. And, and so really, I think Andrew's paper starts to flesh that out to some extent, doesn't it? In that he's saying, um, both in terms of those fast growth clusters. So, um, you know, we've already got some in the Northwest. We mm-hmm. already have stuff around the med tech industry, pharmaceuticals, which we know for some for some quite high um, profile examples recently starting to decline. Um, how do you refire that? How do you, I mean, I've got a client over there who um, does some very interesting stuff in, in, in that sector. Exactly that sort of organization has gone from startups known to scale up. Um, the question all the time from that organization is, investment, 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 you know, the, the, the rounds of investment they have to go through, put them constantly up, up against, um, up against challenges. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think his recommendations, I think Andrew's recommendations on can government start to almost look like a kind of private equity style investor itself. I think that's really interesting. Um, taking an equity stake, putting investment in, but probably at a very different level of risk, right. To private mm-hmm. equity generally one double digit returns, which is quite high, right? Um yeah. so, you know, that's a very interesting model. Um I think you you raised absolutely the point around infrastructure. Here in West Yorkshire, um, we have a regional we for the last couple of years we've had a devolved mayorality. Um Tracy Braben, our mayor. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm sure you've heard her going on <laughs> about buses, 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 and transport, transport, transport. And, and, and I, I can absolutely tell you one of the biggest barriers to productivity is the amount of time you spend driving around at the moment. Um, you know, access to public transport is, is, is very limited. Um, we have one train line. It does go through my town of Huddersfield and, and neighboring towns of Dewsbury and, uh, and to some extent Batley and into Leeds and Manchester. But, you know, Trains are over capacity. Um, they're not particularly reliable, um, and they only and that's the only those are the only places you can get to, right? I mean, mm-hmm. our economy is far more complicated than that. And so, and we have an, a motorway that's going to do this well over capacity as well. Um, in between that, you've got a roads that were designed for hundred years ago for cart and horses, right? They were designed for lots of yeah. carts. So, so in gridlock, it's it, it, it by analogy. I remember living in London in the sort of late 1990s, early 2000s, when it was a very similar situation. You would never imagine that now in London. I mean, the investment that's gone in that means you can get a bus, a tube, whatever, you know, all interoperably is incredible. And that drives that connectivity between business, between investors, between um, higher education institutions, et cetera, et cetera. And principally for people. It means people can get around, meet each other, get into work, do stuff. 
and that makes it an attractive place to invest. It makes business, but it makes business able to connect with each other fundamentally. Now we just do not have that here in the north of England, and so, uh, and no, it's not just the north of England. It's mm-hmm. parts. So I think absolutely investment in infrastructure is really important, and and, and Andrew has made that point. Um, and so, and 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 then you do see the clusters emerge. I think his final points is. It, it, it is sort of well made, I think, around um, how you create tax and other incentives that pull investors out of. I mean, Andrew, as you know, is, is comes from an investment background, mm-hmm. and I think you know we've we've consistently seen. I don't think anyone's yet broken this challenge, but he's he's at least inviting us to think more about it. How do you pull that trillions of pounds that's invested in in the kind of London, what what's called the Golden Triangle, isn't it? London, Cambridge, yeah. Oxford. How do you recreate that in other parts of the country? Um, because there's no doubt that in addition to the sort of infrastructure investment and the people being able to connect with each other, um, the businesses being able to connect, there is also a question around how do you have enough liquidity to um, to take the risk on, on both not just on startups, but on mm-hmm. on, on SMEs. And, and, I'll, and I'll finish with that, that point. I mean, there's... Um, one of the networks I belong to, I, I was just talking last week to an organization that's been around for quite a long time. So this is why I mean, it's not just about startups, but a, a very good business, um, one of the larger independent um, auto traders in secondhand auto and car dealerships in the country. Um, and their constant problem at the moment, and this ties back to your point, Will, about post-COVID is, you know, the car market, secondary car market has changed entirely <laughs> since COVID. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, that, um, you know, the costs because the supply chain was broken, but also because of regulatory changes, the switch to electric, the fact that public transport switched off to a certain extent, et cetera, et cetera, it's just driven that mark. And also the, the macro point that now there are some very big players that come into this, that are vertically integrated, that are both secondary car market they also have digital presence they also do a lot of the investment into that it's a really hard all of that makes it a really hard environment for independence but independents are really important because they create that competition in the, in the market and they are for all the reasons we talked about local employ local people etc now the issue he keeps saying to me is we can live with a world where it costs more to buy the cars um and so it takes longer to buy them get them in sell them um we can live with all of that. We can live with increases in costs of energy, employer increase, et cetera. But the biggest problem is the lack of liquidity. Mm-hmm. In competition with those larger organizations that have huge amounts of venture capital in them, which means that they can take speculative positions, right? So they can buy thousands of cars, even if they know some of them they're probably paying way too much for. Um, and then means, but then it means they can turn those cars over. And it's the turnover of the cars that is the secondary car market, right? That's what makes mm-hmm. you money. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he, because of the increased costs, et cetera, and the fact that his liquidity hasn't gone up, the banks are not lending to him more. In fact, they're probably lending less to him if he wanted it. <laughs> and also he, in, on his balance sheet, he doesn't have that liquidity, right? He mm-hmm. he can't do that. And that's what's killing that market is that they just cannot get enough liquidity to buy enough cars to make that model work. And that's a very good example of what Andrew's talking about, where actually is there a position the government could take or a kind of northern bank funded bank or whatever that says... Yeah, okay, we can see there's a problem with liquidity in that market for, for independent businesses, SMEs. Let's let's inject some liquidity. Let's make them let's make them 
some some money. Let's give them some money. Let's take even their yeah, yeah. stake in that business and give them a million pounds that they can just go and invest because we know it's just such low risk as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. Model that's existed for twenty years. So um, yeah, um, so yeah, I say that because I think you know it's important to give a flavour of the different industries because there are so many different industries and they all have slightly different challenges. But but Andrew's point is very well made. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Hugh. Um, thanks once again for taking the time to speak to me. But I do have one final question for you. Um, okay. We're coming up to uh, a bank holiday. It's going to be a bank holiday um, this coming Monday. And of course, on bank holidays, people like to um, spend time just, you know, if, if, if they're able to um, relaxing and maybe catching up on things. So my final question to you is this. If you had to spend a bank holiday afternoon with any cricketer um, from the history of cricket, who would you spend a bank holiday afternoon with? Ah, right. Wow, what a good question, hey? Um, uh, and and you'll, you'll probably know that I used to play cricket mm-hmm. um, and you know, run a local cricket club here yeah. in Huddersfield. So, I'm, yeah, cricket is very important to me. Um, well... Uh, I'm, I'm at risk of failing Norman Tebbit's cricket test here, aren't I? In that, um, you know, I, I, I spent some time in, in the Caribbean as a youngster, and my dad is from Jamaican heritage. My mum from Indian and, and, and Kenyan, so I, I'm, I'm at risk of offending someone. <laughs> Something's in all of this. Um, I, I, um, I, I, I'm going to cheat slightly, I suppose, and say I would love to. Well, there's 11 players, isn't there, in cricket? Yeah. So I'd like to spend time with at least three of them. Um, and I'd probably say from the West Indies, it would be um, Viv Richards. I always mm-hmm. thought he was a fantastic batsman and has some really interesting stories. Um, from India, you'd have to have, um, well, Sachin Tendulkar. So then I've got two great batsmen. I know I can, I know, I know at least we can get some runs at the top of the order. Um, and, you know, in England at the moment, I am. Um, I really like some, well, the, I don't know if you saw the series on Netflix recently, mm-hmm. which had Brendan McCullum and Phil Tuffinell. Yeah. Um, I thought they were, they had some fantastic conversations, particularly around mental health and other things. So I'd, I'd invite both of them as well. I'd love yeah. to get them both together. And I think Brendan McCullum would, I know he's a New Zealand cricketer, but he'd have some interesting stuff to say about what he's doing with England at the moment. So yeah, those would be my four. I know I cheated uh-huh. slightly, but those would be my four. <laughs> no, no, no. You're more than welcome to cheat. I think those are uh, fantastic choices. Um, thank you. Uh, once again for for taking the time um, to record the podcast mi- with me if people want to find out more about you uh, and more about fair competition for fair growth where should they go to to find out more uh the, we we're featured on both the labor renaissance.org.uk and uh, progressive britain um websites uh there's also been an article that we put out on labor list last week uh, and if they want to find out more about me it's hugh goldborn um it's hugh it's hugh yeah hughgoldborn.com is my website fantastic thank you once again for coming on the podcast lovely thanks a lot thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast if you've enjoyed it you can subscribe to us on itunes spotify podbeam and amazon music you can also follow us on twitter at debated podcast like us on facebook debated podcast and if you'd like to get in touch with us whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.